facing into this southeasty that was coming off the top of the hill and bullets and waves and gave it the noise and trying to get it on the step. And next thing I knew, I'd gone through the wave, not over the wave, you know, so that this green water went right over the top and did it twice. And it was like, what? You know, I thought I'd sunk it. I thought I'd gone underwater. So... G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 11 of On The Step with That Mallard Guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. Great to have you all back for another seaplane story, another great tale from an experienced operator in our unique and exciting industry. As always, to get in contact with me, you can email me on thatmallardguy at hotmail.com or send me a message on my Instagram at thatmallardguy. Folks, today's episode is a beauty. So good, in fact, I'm going to jump straight into it. Peter Gash is one of Australian aviation's well-known figures. Flying for around 40 years, all within the general aviation sector, Peter has accrued over 17,000 water landings, but is more well-known for the company he is owner and CEO of, Sea Air Pacific. No, not the Canadian seaplane company Sea Air, but Sea Air on the Gold Coast of Australia. Recently, they have become very much involved in the testing and development of electric aircraft engines, that you may well see in Cessna caravans in the very short future. In fact, tomorrow, the 28th of May 2020, Magnix will be test flying their 750 horsepower electric engine on a grand caravan in Moses Lake, Washington, United States. It is the follow-up of a flight test from late last year, which was in the de Havilland Beaver seaplane from uh, Harbour Air in uh, Canada there. Uh, What a timely conversation with Peter just before the caravan test flight. Now, I'd like to also mention a few things that will help you understand this episode. Peter talks about the island he owns and operates to, Lady Elliot Island, as well as another island previously operated to called Lady Musgrave. These islands are located off South Queensland, Australia, at the southern boundary of the Great Barrier Reef, and are about an hour and 40-minute Cessna caravan flight north of the Gold Coast. They are both incredibly beautiful and well worth a visit, or even just a Google. But for now, folks, let's start the igniters ticking. Introduce fuel above 12% NG. Observe a clean light off. And once our PD6 is running stable, we'll get going on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A light. Okay, welcome Peter Gash to On The Step, mate. How are you going? G'day, Daniel. How you doing, mate? Very good, very good, mate. It's good to be back in Australia. Uh, last few episodes I've been overseas uh, in the States and Canada and Vietnam talking to some uh, international guests, but it's great to be back home, back in Australia, mate, talking to probably uh, one of the most experienced GA uh, pilots and uh, business owners in Australia. So um, great to have you on the show, mate. Look, it's a real pre- pleasure, mate, as I just was chatting with you earlier about I've been listening to your podcast, and I think it's a credit to you, the way you're um, bringing the industry to the industry, you know, bringing people in and getting the story told for for others to hear, and of course the young people to enthuse the young people, because that's our future is is um, the young and up and comings that want to get in and do some of the exciting things that that we've all had the fortune to do in our lives. 
Exactly, and there's so many good stories out there that, that I think deserve to be told. And um, and like you said, the future coming up, that's a big thing uh, with you, which we're going to touch on soon with your career. Although we're back in Australia, don't be disappointed, everyone out there listening, because we've got some really exciting, cool stuff coming up on this episode. We're going to talk a little bit about your business, Peter, Sea uh, Air, uh, which has been operating for, I think, around 35 years now. Uh, your own island, Lady Elliot Island, which is part of the Great Barrier Reef, which is incredible, uh, and and your seaplane career, which also involves flying mallards, which is incredible, and uh, we're going to touch on some electric engine work, which could see um, some caravans potentially on floats uh, with electric engines. So a lot of exciting stuff to get to. But mate, I want to start with your seaplane career. So what got you into flying seaplanes at the start of your aviation career? Yeah, mate, look, I was a young kid that fell in love with aeroplanes from an early age in central Victoria, and um, then my family moved me to South Australia where I got onto boats, and I was a confused young man because I thought, do I want to be a boat skipper or do I want to be an airplane airplane pilot, you know? (laughs) And I went somewhere in my life, I got the opportunity to go and learn to fly. I was in my early 20s, and um, I happened to come down to the Gold Coast and I saw this 206 on floats and my brain just went click that's me that's what I got to do so I just came and met a guy called Bill Lane he had a company at the time called Southport Floatplane Services which was based here at Hollywell which is where I'm sitting now in the house Bill built way back in the 70s it's an aircraft wow. hangar and yeah, we cool. bought it off off the family and I got Bill to teach me how to fly the 206 and mate on we went from there I was just instantly in love and very passionate about aviation in general, but particularly seaplaning. And um, so I've, I've just had, you know, in my life, I've had to, the amazing fortune to have met and be mentored by some real legends. And, you know, Bill sits in, in there as one of those amazing legends. But along the way, I, I've i met some and worked with some cracking people. I don't, you probably know up your way, Craig Muir and Ken Patton started Alligator Airways in Kununurra. I've heard and of the, Alligator. I don't actually know the two names, unfortunately, but yeah, Alligator I've heard of. Yeah, well, Craig and Ken started it. <clears throat> Craig was an aircraft engineer and a pilot. Ken was a helicopter pilot. And they had the first Beaver float plane down in Broome, and I used to fly that for them, for um, Kim Mail, what was called Streeter and Mail, or the pearling business that was down there. And there was two pearling companies up in the top end in those days, was the, the Paspaley family up in Darwin and the Mail family down in Broome. And they were a very historic family. And um, Kim Mail, actually, his dad was uh, Sam Mail, and his partner was a guy called Kuribayashi, the Japanese guy. And the Japanese knew how to grow the pearls. And Kuribayashi is where the name Kuribay came from, if you yeah, break that word up. Yeah. yeah. So you'd probably know that because you go down there a bit. So no, I was, a bit, yeah. yeah. I had the good fortune of living in Broome when there was two airplanes on the airfield and there was just nothing there and flying a beaver. So, yeah, you know, then I've, I've, I'm going forward with legends. Rod Johnson, you know, I had the great fortune of being trained on hulls because I flew float planes for probably the first four or five years of my career. And then Rod taught me how to fly the Buccaneer, and I couldn't have been trained by anybody better. Him and Kev Bow would be, without a doubt, the two best sets of hands on those boats. And then Rod then converted me to the Mallard, and, and I flew with him and Peter McLeod. God bless him. He was another great set of hands unfortunately passed away in a widgeon over in vancouver some years back and um yeah so float planing for me started here at, at hollywell runaway bay and this business started here in 1971 so it's coming up 50 years 
And Bill sold it to a guy called Terry O'Hare, which you probably heard a bit of talk about from Kev Bow in his yeah. two-part series. Yeah, and Terry and I have been great friends for a long time. An amazing man, amazing, amazing mentor also, a real business mentor, a man who put out his hand and he was a man you could trust if he said he was going to do something, you know, and he, 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 he was another story of, of enormous bloody stature. But uh, I worked with Terry when we bought Airwood Sunday. Well, Terry bought Airwood Sunday and flew through that process there from about 87 through until about 90 or 91. And then I bought what was left of the Sea Air, Airwood Sunday bones, I guess you could say, and kept the Sea Air Gold Coast business. And we sold the Sea Airwood Sunday business to the guys at Hamilton Island because after the devastation of what went on with the, the different things that happened up there, which particularly was the airline dispute, or nowadays people call it the pilot strike. But as um, Kev pointed out in his um, podcast, it was a big, it was a, there was a lot of politics in that. You know, that was when they were trying to get the airlines in financial shape to take on Compass. And um, so they were getting rid of pilots and it was a pretty ugly period. But yeah, I lived through that and saw that and flew beavers, lots of beavers. <laughs> Started with beavers over in um, in Broome with Craig and Ken with alligator. Yeah, then I got on the didn't do much on the mallard. I you know I didn't spend a lot of time on the boats. I was more on the on the floats. But uh, yeah, that probably gives you a bit of a starting point, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it gives a, a good little indication of your uh, float flying career. Now, what were, what were some of the best memories you had of the mallard? If looking back now in your career. <laughs> I just had a vision of one of the best things I can remember, and that's sitting next to Rocket Rod Johnson. And if you've ever met him, you know what I'm talking about. An amazing. Individual. I had dinner with Rod in Derby actually um, last year. Lovely guy, and uh, was happy to talk all about mallards, which was great. And uh, I've already targeted him as maybe a potential uh, interview, especially after what Kevin said about him. So, yeah, keep an eye on that space. So here's my vision, right? I'm sitting next to him. He's teaching me how to fly the thing. And he winds the window down a little bit. We were in OAW, which is, uh, what was that one, J20? I think it's years I got it now. I think it, it was be 22. J23. PPI, 23. is that right? Okay. PPI? Yeah, OAW. It definitely, wasn't, PPI. it definitely wasn't the turbine. So, no. yeah, 22 yeah, that or was 20. Yeah. yeah, it was 22. And we're sitting in there. He winds the window down. He lights up a smoke. <laughs> and, he, and he's holding the cigarette up near the window so the smoke goes out and of course if you ever fly on a mallard particularly at night you know that you look out the window and there over the top of the wing is the exhaust because i only ever flew the radial mallards i didn't fly the turbine okay. and and the exhaust running over the top of the wing and there's just this massive fire and there's all this fuel in the tank because they run in av, av gas obviously not jet fuel and here's Rod with his little smoke and the cigarette smoke. And so, yeah, that was that's a memory that I've got. It just came to me <laughs> as you asked me that question. A, a weird thing for a pilot to tell you, but that that was one of the things I recall. And that was back in the 80s when smoking yeah. in airplanes was allowed, you know. Oh, I remember one of the guys I used to work with at Airwick used to always tell this story about when he was doing his pilot training back in the 80s as well. And, you know, they're doing a, a nav, just like a PPL nav type thing. And, you know, they've got whack charts all over the cockpit. You know, they don't know where the hell they are. There's whack charts turned up and down. And there's the uh, instructor pilot with a, a cigar or, you know, cigarette or something. And there's just ash going out all over these whack charts, you know, like <laughs> crazy times, eh? Yeah, oh, different times, mate. The Mallards were an amazing thing. We, we used to take OAW from the Gold Coast here up to Lady Musgrave. Um, Rod and I... He trained me on that, and and um, the guy that I had here as the captain was a guy called Jim Grucci, 
Um, and Jim's now, well, I don't know where it is exactly with the airlines, but he's certainly with Qantas now. But Jim was one of the boys that came out of the Airwit Sunday Sea merger, I guess you would call it, and brilliant young pilot. And we used to fly the Mallard up to Musgrave for the day with Japanese tourists in the back and take them snorkeling for the day and then bring them home. And with OAW, we got her out of Vancouver, as you, as as Kev mentioned. Now I think Terry bought off. A, I'm pretty sure it was a guy called John Hill, brought it out of Vancouver, and Rod flew it home. That's another story I'll throw in there in a bit. And anyway, we'd get there to Musgrave, and we'd we'd hook her up, and we'd go over to the island. About every hour, one of us had to swim over and turn the bilge pumps on to pump the water out of her because she just leaked. You know, this thing had had this massive rebuild, but it still had headaches. We actually used to we, it, nickname when it first came to Australia was the malfunction because there was always something wrong with the bloody thing. We were always fixing <laughs> it. And I'm an aircraft engineer, which I started my apprenticeship as an engineer under Craig Muir up there in Kununurra because he he was one of my heroes because he was a pilot and an engineer. And his dad was Doug Muir, another engineer. So, you know, I used to find myself flying the bloody thing all day and then working on it all night so we could fly it again the next day. So, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stories about the Mallards. Another really good one, and you may or may not have heard about it, was LAW, which was 23, I think she is, which is, I think you're, you now call it, um, sorry, no, 22 was LAW, PPE, you call it. Yep, yep. She, this is a bit of a legend story, was Rod Johnson again. He, um, they got a call, it was in the Sea Air with Sunday days, it was probably, it was probably uh, 88, yes, it would have been 88, and they got a call from a ship that was a couple hundred miles out to sea that needed some parts flown out to it. And anybody in their right mind would have said no. But the question was asked, how flat is it? How big is the swell? Rocket got in the thing, took the part. I think he had his brother Ian with him by memory, Ian Johnson. The two Johnson boys used to do a lot of the mallard flying. And they headed out to this bloody boat, out from the Sundays, something like 200 miles out to sea. Rod will give you more clarity on the story. So they've landed next to the boat. I mean, just in itself is a fairly um, remarkable effort. They've landed, and as they've landed and stopped, how exactly is a bit unclear, but anyhow, one of the engines caught fire. And so they blew the bottles off because the radials had fire bottles, put the fire out, but of course, guess what? You're on the water a couple hundred miles out to sea with an unserviceable airplane and only one engine. And that was, you know, except for courage and commitment that was the end of that airplane there's just no way that should have come home but so what happens so peter bull who was another one of the airwit yep, legends i guess yep. you pete, pete bull because pete and rod were actually partners with kevin bow if i i was gonna say he's one of the owners wasn't he yeah peter bull stage, rod yeah. johnson and kevin bow were partners in it at some points and um so bully god bless him he gets in a beaver with some sandwiches and some food and what do you think he does because of course the ship that they've gone out to take the parts for comes over with a dinghy, gets the parts, see ya, and they go and they leave the boys there. <laughs> Seriously, they left them wow. there. So Bully comes out in a beaver, gives them some food and some tow ropes and things, and hangs around with them for a while and says, Well, I gotta go. So he heads off. And so Terry and whomever else, Shane, his son, whomever, I'm not exactly sure who arranged it, they arranged a trawler that was out somewhere there to pick it up and tow it back or to hook it up on a line and tow it back with the two Johnson brothers on board. And um, so it was something like a two- or three-day tow. And the the challenges that they would have faced, because, of course, the, the tip tanks, this was LAW, and she was fairly untidy at the time. She was at, a, uh, uh, let's say, a less than 
perfect point in her life. She was an old girl already, had leaking the, the tips, the tanks, you know, the sponsons yeah, yeah, yep. were leaking. And so they'd had to go out to one of the sponsons every half an hour or something with a dinghy, stop the tow, drain, pull oh. the bung out of it, let the water out, put the bung back in, come back in, get in it. They towed it for several days and got it back to Shoot Harbour. Somehow or another coerced it into flight and then flew it over to the hangar and put in the hangar and it was in the hangar for like nearly a year and got a full rebuild now that was just a credit to not giving up you know and that's really to me that typifies rocket road he's not a bloke that give up on anything and i remember him i said to him mate why didn't you just leave it there the company could have probably done with the insurance check he yeah. said mate it was a mallard and i loved it i wasn't leaving it there something like that he said to me so that that to me was just an, an, an amazing story about an amazing airplane that survived that and, and the blokes that were in it doing it you know yeah exactly i think anyone who flies a mallard does fall in love with the aircraft don't they like it's um it's such an incredible machine to fly, and I can only imagine that being uh, a radial engine mallard, you'd almost fall in love with it a bit more, wouldn't you? With the nostalgia and whatnot of the radials, but um, yeah, yeah, they were beautiful. Then round engines were lovely things to fly. They didn't go like I mean, I never flew the turbine mallards, but I fly lots of turbines these days with my twin otters and my caravans, and you know they they very clinical, they're very lovely, but they don't have the character of a mallard. No, I mean there's nothing like. Round- um, Throwing the throwing the arm out onto the uh, window of the beaver, hey. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's good fun. I'll throw I'll, I'll throw you another quick story on the character of a mallard. When we had OAW here, we had a challenge with one of the engines, and my my chief engineer was a guy called Vic Cover, who was chief pilot of the RFDS for thirty five years. So Vic uh-huh. had the licenses on radial engines, but he didn't. He was he was in, well in his seventies, so he he was training me, so he'd let me do the work. We had to pull a carburetor off one. I don't know if you've ever pulled a carburetor off a 1340 or not, but, mate, let me tell you, it's one of the most challenging things you'll ever do. So I've just I'm just run out of words, of, of, of oaths and swear words. I finally got this bloody carburetor off, and it's taken me a day, and I've got it off, and there's one nut that holds it up underneath to the induction, and it just is the worst fight you could ever have. And I got the carby off, and there, near, it glued to this nut is – is a dime, an American dime, and it's glued there. And Vic started laughing at him. I said, what's, what's the joke, mate? He said, don't you know what that is? I said, no. He said, that's the message from the last bloke book that Carby on that said, if you got the thing off, you've just earned the dime. He said, so <laughs> you, you keep the dime and you glue something else back there when you put the Carby back on. So that's what I did. So <laughs> that's $50 Australian note? Oh, no, no, mate, no, probably Wasn't 20 cents. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that must have been you back in your engineering days, was it, mate? Like, when did yeah. they start? Was that before flying, or no? I was flying first, and I I saw Craig when I was up in Broome. Craig was in Kununurra, and he could he could come down there and fix because I had IMU there, a little Beaver at the time on on six thousand whip amphibs, and now and again he'd have to come down and fix it, and we'd do the hundred hourlies, or I'd take it up there to Kununurra, and and I was fascinated by the fact this bloke could fly the plane around, and then he could pull the toolbox out and he'd fix it and I said to Craig I want to be like you mate and he said well you just get on with the tools and you, and you start studying so I started a, a a record of service you know like an experience logbook and yep, started yep. under Craig and then when I came back here to the Gold Coast I worked under Vic Cover and and um, a few of the other guys that were here um, old Dick Hart who was one of the starters of Air Gold Coast and and um, so I just kept experience booklets and then I eventually started to sit the exams and 13 exams and about 10 years later I got my LAME and uh, just kept enjoying doing that. But as the business has grown now, I've got eight engineers that look after our fleet and so 
I don't get my hands dirty anymore. And the young guys sometimes wonder when I wander out, how come he's looking at that? He's, he's the boss. And you're like, yeah, but I know how to use the tools, fellas, so don't worry yes. about it. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, buddy. The owner of a business, an aviation business, who's not only the chief pilot but also a lamey. Bloody hell, you'd be you'd be the scariest guy getting around, wouldn't you? Walking around that hangar. Well, look, I've got to say this, mate. Seriously, I think it's one of the the secrets to the success of my business because general aviation, particularly, it's it's not just about flying them; it's about fixing them and keeping them right and keeping them in good order and knowing. You know, in your early career, when when money is really tight, knowing what's what what can and can't be accepted, and what needs to be done to make an aeroplane safe and sound, and so having that background has been just priceless for me, and and understanding being able to have that discussion with my chief engineer and my team nowadays, and my, you know my shop foreman and stuff, and just discussing what's needed on a particular airplane, and when you're flying it, you can come back and say, "Man, needs this, this, and this. That's okay. That's not yeah. you know, it just gives you a different level of understanding." Absolutely. I can definitely relate to that being, you know, the, the pilot side of things, you know, coming back and telling engineers, oh, this has failed. And, and, and then it's not just writing it up in the in the logbook, is it? It's more about um, giving the engineers some clues that will help them um, solve the problem really quickly. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's not just like, oh, this, this gauge is broken or this, this, this thing's broken. It's about all the steps behind it, you know, isolating different systems to see where the problem might lie type thing, you know. Yeah. Um, I know as well with my old man's business, the seaplane down there in Geelong, engineering was a, you know, a real pain in the bum, I guess you could say, for him, you know, being a straight float seaplane. He couldn't have the access to, to flight to um, an engineering facility at another airport so he had to get the engineers down and you know if it was the tiniest little thing that needed fixing even though he could do it um, you know you have to get a lamey down or get an engineer down to do it and they'd generally be driving an hour each way back and yeah. forth which you're yeah. paying 80 bucks an hour for at least which is really costly for a small aviation company especially like a one-man um, show so that must have been really good to have that engineering ticket as well. Yeah, I look at it, and it's um, yeah, and I enjoy it as well as that. You know, to me, um, one of the passions that I have is is the whole thing about the airplane. It's not just getting in it and flying it; it's how it was built, how it goes together, keeping it in good order. I take great pride in how good our fleet are nowadays. We've got seven caravans and two twin otters, and and I'm very proud of them. You know, the twin otters are like the mallards they're not babies anymore they're both 67 model machines, but I've got a couple of 2019 caravans. You know, and and to see the the variation between the latest three and a half million dollar caravan and and a and a fifty three year old twin otter or a sixty plus year old mallard, it's it's just yeah, it's just something about aviation. It's a special industry. There's no doubt about it. it. Attracts unique individuals and it provides us with the ability to do things in a way that wouldn't otherwise just not be possible. You know. Exactly. Now you don't have any seaplanes in the current sea air fleet, but you do have a set of floats, though, don't you? Yeah, I've got one of my caravans on floats right now. One oh, of my, I do. Okay. Yeah, one of my short bodies, LMZ, um, is a 89 model caravan short body, and it's on a set of 8,000 whips, amphibs, and we've just spent a heap of money on them and just given them a complete birthday. And so they're in really good shape, and they're back under Zulu, and we just put her back together, and I did some some training and some currency for a couple of people around the industry that wanted to get back on the floats, and um had some ideas for her and then this coronavirus thing hit so I parked her and I haven't actually well I flew her last weekend but she hasn't done much at all now that she's been on flights for about two months well nearly three months we've had her back on 
So she's sitting there as, you know, a few of our fleet are because, you know, we've got nine machines at the moment with the way the thing is. We're using about five or six of them. And so, yeah, love them. But I've got to say there was a reason I went away from the float planes and to the land planes. And and it was it was motivated by, you know, you've heard it. You've heard them, all the things with what I've listened to with your um, podcasts about seaplaning is fun I think one of the things that Mike um, Steer said see, that I think that might have been this Virgin Island Seaplane Shuttle, one of their uh, slogans company, or yeah, slogan, company yeah. logans was seaplane flying, seaplane flying is fun, but someone else said seaplane flying is dangerous. Yeah. Mate, just just look at the history books. They, they all end up in tears or almost all end up in tears. And you are fortunate because you are flying for an organisation that's really – really structured and clinical and it's financially supported in such a way that it can deliver a product. But for guys like Kev Bowe and Bill Lane and, you know, those guys, those pioneers that started out with no bloody money trying to pay the airplanes off, working, you know, commercial pressures, working in difficult conditions that ordinarily you probably should question whether you'd went and, and same as like your dad, difficulties of getting engineers to do the thing that seaplanes had a lot going against them. The one thing going for them was that passion and the romance. But so I moved away predominantly from seaplanes to land planes in about 98. You know, I managed to – I had my operation going from the Gold Coast to Lady Musgrave Island, which was a seaplane operation. We landed in that spectacular Lady Musgrave Lagoon, and we did that for about 10 or 12 years. Started with 206s on floats and – and 185s on floats, and then we took beavers up there, and um, eventually we took the mallard up there. We even took the Canadair. We took the Canadair 215 when we brought it oh, into wow. the country. Yeah, we took the we, we had the 415 in the country, and then the 215. Back in the days when the flight department laughed at us and said they're useless, we, that you won't ever use airplanes to fight fires. I said, well, one day you guys will wake up and realise, and we send them back home because they didn't want them. But anyway, we took we took them up there, and um, mate, I just battled. To be blunt, I battled. And once I bought a caravan, the challenge I had was Musgrave was was um, a long way, 250 miles from here. So you were limited by the time that you could arrive and depart and try and deliver a, an amount of time that a guest enjoyed the place. So you were limited to arriving between sort of nine and 10:30 or 11 every morning. You couldn't work a low tide only, like you could out of the wit Sundays to Hardy or Bait, and so. Nine or ten in the morning is when you got the highest tides on the cycle of the tide, and then you throw twenty or twenty-five knots in there, which is the average wind strength for the Southern Capricorn Bunker yeah, Group, and yeah. you got you're landing in the sea, and so it was really hard, and and um, so I just identified that it, we were we were struggling to get more than twenty days a month. There was ten days we just couldn't travel, you know, not safely or it was marginal, and of course therein is the start of the commercial pressures. So we. Um, We'd been to Lady Elliot several times and we knew the resort was there. We knew the airstrip was there. So uh, my wife and I spent quite a lot of time working with another legend and another mentor, Bevan Whitaker, who actually owned the lease at the time. And he had several twin otters and a mallard, uh, sorry, mallard, a, a nomad. And he was operating into that strip at Elliot, which is only 650 metres long. And it's on the Coral Cay from beach to beach. And so I worked with Bevan for a time trying to convince him to let me bring my caravan in there on those other 10 days, those windy days. And so I did. I would take the amphib in there and land on that 650-metre strip from time to time, but it definitely wasn't the right place for the aeroplane. It didn't like it. It was tough, hard, rough coral strip, short runway, north-south strip, wind always 25 knots from the east. So it was pretty tough. And Bevan and I 
spent probably a year working the finer details. I eventually bought one of his nomads, Mike Sarah Foxtrot, and um, and agreed to take the floats off my airplane, LMD, put it on wheels, and fly people there from the Gold Coast for my guests, but then do his and slowly buy his airplanes, which was nomads and twin otters, with the goal of, of ultimately buying the resort off him 10 years down the road. It was a simple handshake deal. Two blokes look each other in the eye, shook hands, going to do it. 10 years' time, okay, let's make it happen. And 10 years later, we did. So we shook hands in 95, 96, and um, I, I worked with him, did one of the hardest apprenticeships you'll ever do, working under a bloke like that, because he, as you probably know, he started Noosa Air, which morphed into Sunstate Airlines, which he sold to James Strong, which was Australian Airlines, and now that's, of course, Qantas Link. So he had a couple of hundred pilots and heaps of airplanes when it was Sunstate beating up and down the East Coast. He knew aviation better than most. And so I spent 10 years under Bevan and God rest his soul. He passed away only late last year. But a bugger, he taught me a lot of a lot of understanding and a lot of savvy about business and aviation. So, yeah, I, I bought the resort and took it over in 2005. And by then we had one Twin Otter and Nomad, a couple of caravans. And we we loved the Twin Otter. We, we sort of parted company with it. We had it in Broome for quite a time. I should think for a minute there. We parted company with the Otter in... 08, we decided to sell it to go to, it was the GFC, and we'd had it working on a contract in Broome, and we got offered some money for it to go overseas. We sold it, moved into more caravans, and um, just kept evolving the caravans. We had Islanders and other different things along the way, but um, kept putting caravans on and off floats. One of the amazing things about a caravan is you can, we had LMD, she was my first floaty, and she, they're the floats that I've still got. We could put her on floats in four or five hours. And we could pull her off floats in four or five hours. Yeah, that's pretty handy, eh? Hey? Oh, amazing. So I remember coming home and saying to my engineers at five o'clock in the afternoon, I need that thing on floats in the morning. I'll stay and give you a hand. And at 10 o'clock at night, we'd all go home, things on floats, ready to go, and get up in the morning, I'd fly it, and I'd go and do a job out to the Swains or somewhere. You know, we had some long overwater approvals, and I'd go out to Cato Reef or out to to um, Frederick or Canway out in the Southern Coral Sea. I'd bring it back and say to them, I need it back on wheels in the morning, and quite <laughs> often they'd do that. And, and, and so we'd literally have it on floats for a day. It's insane yeah. how good a caravan can be as adapting from one to the other. Yeah, awesome. So a lot of stuff around uh, that Lady Elliot Island now that uh, you're involved with now. Um, as you said, very short strip that runs basically straight across the uh, – the island there, which is quite interesting. How do the pilots adapt to that as a, an aviation kind of concept, the really short grass strip? Yeah, it's the hardest part of our operation is teaching them to be safe and um, consistent in that because it's, you know, it's it's a north-south strip, as I said, 650 metres. It's coral with grass on it and um, runs from beach to beach and the wind is traditionally southeast, so you've got 45 degrees from the side and the average wind strength out there is around 20 to 22 knots so you've always work on a left-hand crosswind pretty much whoever flies it just has to be confident has to be prepared to go around if it's not right because you know we've got some really tight parameters about yes or no you know it's um the caravans do it beautifully the otter does it beautifully the nomad wasn't as good but um yeah it's uh, just i guess it's just Proper training, you know, and thorough training and, and regular checking. We fly out with our guy, our pilots every three months. We'll do a check because we're a single-engine IFR operation, so we, 
we're flying a SEPPA, as you know what that is, approved single-engine yeah, yeah, tur- turbine-powered aircraft, yeah. yep. And so we do a lot of IF stuff. And so weather isn't the issue for us. We can get to Ladiali at pretty much 365 days of the year, which gives it some really good consistency and reliability because we've got a 150-bed resort out there and I've usually got 35 or 40 staff and usually got 100-odd guests out there on the resort at any given time. And so, you know, there can be a few movements in and out of there during the course of a busy season, you know. Yeah. And speaking of uh, guests, mate, you had a pretty high-level celebrity guest come out with you on the order <laughs> last year. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, that was amazing, actually, because, you know, our whole culture and our whole philosophical viewpoint with Lady Elliot, and as slowly, I mean, we all start as young people with a different attitude, but we, we grow through the things that young people do. I know I don't know about you, but I was a bit of a wild lad at early ages and got more and more into trying to do the right thing by the environment, trying to do the right thing by the planet. So our culture at Lady Elliot now is very much about conservation, preservation and and looking after the place that we're on and leaving Lady Elliot better than we found it. It's a recovering mine site. So we've got a, a, a solar power station there. We make all our power from the sun. We desalinate all our own water. We treat our own wastewater in a World Heritage National Park. It's quite It's quite striking it's quite a remarkable place and what goes on out there and i'm very proud of them all but anyway what that leads to of course is that we're considered the leader in the conservation field on the great barrier reef with all the barrier reef islands and so prince charles is very much a conservationist and he's very passionate about doing the right thing by the environment for future generations which is just comes straight out of our hymn book you know so when he came to australia to open the commonwealth games he expressed a desire to go to the Great Barrier Reef and see what was going on for himself. And he wanted to particularly visit Lady Elliot. And it was like, you're joking. Couldn't he go to Hamilton or somewhere? It'd be easy. You know, like, because <laughs> you just don't bring Prince Charles, mate. Like, you bring his entourage. And, and of course, you bring the world media. So we had to get 70 people out there on the day. And um, we were excited to do, but I mean, you know, this, um, I guess you could say there was somewhat, somewhat a level of pressure that one would normally not feel during the day. So, yeah, we, we had to bring all these different people out. And, of course, what did you think happened? There was a cyclone not far away. And it was all planned that he and I were to do certain things and then we would have a snorkel together and then I'd show him through the our nursery because we planted over 10,000 trees back into that site. And and so um, there's a cyclone coming. So they've wanted to cancel at the last minute and I've had to say to them, well, look, these are the facts, you know, let's assess the risk and and these are the facts and this is how we see it. We're comfortable. We will be flying in and out quite safely. And, you know, we didn't have a cyclone there, but it was, you know, some distance away and and so it was quite windy. So anyway, we brought him in there and he just loved it because he's an ex-pilot. And he said to me, Pete, one of the things I never flew was a twin otter and he just loved it in in the twin otter and um, took him around, had a, a round table out there. We had 28 of Australia's leading CEOs from all the major companies. We had BHP and Lendlease and... Australia Post and Qantas and Jetstar and um, Virgin and Microsoft, you name them, they were there. It was just extraordinary, the VIPs that we had there and the media that we had there. But it was a very low-key event for Australia. It was a big event overseas, but a lower-key event in Australia because it was all a big secret. No one could be told he was going there until he'd after he'd been because of who he is and the risk. And there was military vessels and all sorts of stuff hanging about for his protection and um so anyway we had about four hours there and he called this round table and he sat down and 
basically said to all, all the CEOs that were invited, all these major shapers, we had the, the Federal Environment Minister and the State Environment Minister and the head of Gabrumpa and the head of the Founda- Great Barrier Foundation. It was, it was a real who's who there. And um, he sort of challenged them and said, so you can see what Peter and his team are doing here as a small family operation to try and do something to protect the Great Barrier and ultimately protect the planet. What are you people who drive some of the biggest companies in Australia and biggest organisations, what are you doing to protect the reef? And um, long and the short of it was that um, Steve McCann from Lendley stood up and said, well, I'll put $5 million on the table. And he pointed at Melissa Price, who was at the time the environment, acting environment minister. He said, if she'll, if she'll match me. So she next thing, bam, bam, there was $10 million basically <laughs> on the table for the Barrier Reef. And along and the short of that was with Anna Marsden from the foundation and others, they raised $14 million on the day, which just blew all of us away because I had been trying to raise a couple of million to help me to finish the forest project, the revegetation project, and Anna had said to me, we'll work together on this, Pete. And this was a part of it. So, well, it looks like I've got my two million here, which I thought I would spend over 10 years. And um, then three days later, Prince Charles, because John Schubert, ex-Qantas um, chairman, was there as well. And he's one of the chairs of – he was the chairman at the time of the Great Barrier Foundation. He went down and spoke with Malcolm Turnbull as a result of it. And the rest is history. $440 million landed in the bank account of the Great Bar- Barrier Reef Foundation, one of the most controversial banking deposits ever made. But that was made as a result of Prince Charles's visit and all those people's visit for the future of the Great Barrier Reef. And I'm very proud of the fact that little Lady Elliot played a small part in that, you know. That's pretty crazy. And it's just crazy, mate. But it needs to be done because, I mean, you know, mate, you've lived and worked in the Whitsunders. You know how important it is for the Great Barrier Reef's protection. You know what a ma- magnificent asset it is, not just for Australia, but for the planet. And and so, yeah, for Prince Charles really rocked the boat there and, and it's been fantastic. Yeah, I love that. That's a great story. And um, I think coming out of that, mate, um, probably leads me on to the next thing is uh, earlier this year, you were, you were awarded the Order of Australia Medal um, in the General Division for services to ecotourism and aviation, mate. Congratulations for that. And I'm sure all of you, your team, um, are all part of that, you know, driving force to do what you're doing. Crikey, mate! Yeah, thanks. Well, look, and I, and I'm, I'm very humbled by the award. But I, I continually say to people, it's not my award. It's, it's all of our award. It's the team. As, as I said, there's 110 of us when we, when we um, all sat down with this coronavirus battle, and 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 every one of them. The, the award belongs to all of them. Obviously, my beautiful wife, Julie, and my two girls, Amy and Chloe, they're the ones that have to endure a crazy old man that stays at home working his <laughs> head off and, and never stops thinking about what we're going to do next to save the planet and fly our airplanes and run our island, you know. But it's it's a, it's a tremendous honour and not something I ever dreamed in my wildest dreams when I was getting told off at school or getting the strap from the headmaster for the things that young fellows did that I'd possibly ever achieve such a thing. But it's not about me, it's about my team and it's about the work that they do and continue to do. And, um, I, you know, even this coronavirus issue that we face now, I, I keep this, I have this positive view that on the other side of this is an improvement for the future of our future generations and our planet. You know, I think that that's really important. You know, the award was for t- services to ecotourism and aviation and, you know, 40 or almost 40 years with aviation and flying boats and just generally aviation 
it's a load, as you can imagine. You've been in it a while now. I mean, ecotourism is a new thing. A lot of people say to me, what, what, when we started it, what's ecotourism? So you'll see it's about life. It's about human beings. It's about our values. It's about our principles. It's about our ethics. It's about, it's about how we live our life and it's how we how our footprint steps lightly on the planet and so yeah i'm quite quite humbled by it mate absolutely yeah i guess that leads again on to the next thing that i want to talk about um pollution and and trying to mitigate or reduce our impact on the planet with uh with aviation and and how we do that and and that is the electric engine and we just saw recently, I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there um, are well aware of what happened over in Canada with uh, Harbour Air um, flying, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's one of the first electric um, commercial engines um, in that, the world. That's correct. Yep, yeah, it was the, the first commercially electric-powered aircraft to fly a passenger-carrying aircraft. Yeah, which um, was on a Beaver, which is incredible, uh, yep. and on floats, that's even, even more amazing. But, mate, what I didn't realise was that this company, Magna X, is yep. um, is an Australian-based company in the Gold Coast. Um, yep, based up here at Arundel, just two minutes' drive from my home, and um, really proud of the story. It's been a bit of a bit of a quiet story for a long time because Magnix is um, it's a company that's supported by a very very generous benefactor, a philanthropic um, individual that a Kiwi actually who prefers not to be acknowledged for his efforts he's spending an enormous amount of money and they came to us three or four years ago with this dream and um they had a plan to put an electric motor in a set in something a passenger carrying airplane and someone had said what about a caravan so we stuck our hand and said we'll give you a hand as best we can you know we're limited we're a commercial operator we don't have loose funds lying around but we do what we can and so we've been involved with magnix based out of arundel ever since those early days when that 11 engineers walked in and started prodding and poking at a caravan and said, how will we do this? And so my team, because a couple of my senior engineers are real electric heads, as I call them, cone heads, which is a bit of a nickname for a bloke who loves electrics. And yep, yep. I've got, got Mick Bajellis, who just, just loves it, and he's so passionate. He's put a lot of his time in with the boys from Magnix. And, of course, I've tried to look at it from a commercial viewpoint and discuss the costing and Roy Ganzarski is the CEO and they've come out now and it started – It's now they're now starting to chase some media, whereas up until the Beaver launch, there was very little media about Magnix. It was, was a bit of a silent story and we were quite happy to do that. But, you know, some interesting parts of that as it's evolved, it's, it's a modular engine, um, electric engine, and the engine itself is just fantastic and there's no question that the engine's going to do it. The challenge is still with the batteries and the weight of the batteries – but the um, the motors in modules, 375 horsepower modules. So they've started a bit more seaplane link. They wanted to put in a caravan, and we're trying to build a what they call an iron bird test bed. And they're looking around the world, and guess who had one? I had Witty, the, the old WTY, because I bought her when she hit the top of the hill at Whit Sunday Island, and I thought I'll use that for a, I'll make a caravan simulator one day. And I had it oh, parked yeah. in the parked in the shed, and then we decided. We can't make a caravan simulator. She's going to become Magnix's test bed. So Witty became, she um, she became the test bed. And so the 375 went in there and ran for quite some time. Then it got doubled up with the second module, and now it's got 750 shaft horsepower in it, and the the correct size propeller. And so they've been running thousands of hours, lots and lots of hours on that, to testing it and and proving it. So the the theory was going to be, Pete's going to be a hero. They're going to put in a caravan one day, and we're going to fly it. And, 
I kept saying, boy, it sounds good in theory, but what we don't want is bad publicity. We, we need to put in something that if something doesn't work, preferably it's a float plane, we can park it back on the water. And, um, you know, the talk was a beaver, and, of course, we didn't have a beaver. There's beavers over there. Magnix, Roy Ganzarski, actually, a lot of his history is with Boeing. He's a very capable individual, a guy who's running the show, very, very capable man, really clever guy, and he has a big link in, in Seattle. So, of course, it's a bit of the land of can-do over there when it comes to developing and experimental, whereas here in Australia it's not so accommodating. So the decision was made that the Seattle area would be they would keep development going, and they they did a deal with um, Greg McDougall from um, Harbour Air to put one in, put an engine in that little beaver. It was an old beaver they had there, and they dressed it up and tied it up and developed it, and they flew it, and it's just fantastic. The thing is fantastic. Its limitation, as I said, is the weight of the battery, and we all knew that was going to be the limit, but now we've got the engine in a 208B, if you if you can see it on my Facebook, or if you, if you Google Magnix and have a look at their website, you'll see that on the 28th of May on Moses Lake, we're hoping to fly the first Cessna Caravan with a 750 shaft horsepower electric engine in it, which is just astronomically exciting for me. Yeah. Because, you know, where's I'm looking at... Where's that location, sorry? Washington State, out, oh, out, um, out, out east of... Um, Seattle there, yeah, and they're they're working with I think the company's called Aerotech. We our input has been less and less as it's got closer to the pointy end because there's more and more of it now happening in Seattle. There's this the, the senior design engineers are still here on the Gold Coast and we still do, do what we can to assist, but they've now gone to, to greater levels with Aerotech and the, and the design companies that they're working with to to get it to fly. So it 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 will fly. It will definitely fly. It's got a range at the moment of about 45 minutes plus some reserve so it's you know it's technically capable of going from harvey bay to lady elliott for me now but obviously it's got certification requirements and and the battery's still pretty heavy you know the batteries to give us that flight time is almost a ton of battery oh wow so you know that's a full tank a caravan carries a ton yeah. of fuels and that's full fuel so we'd still get six or seven passengers yeah, and it's yeah. it's it still economically works that's what's brilliant about a caravan so it does economically work and the engine is lighter than the pd6 so when we built the ironbird we had a, they had to build a longer engine frame which was built down by one of our engine guys down in ballina and um pulled the engine further forward you know to get the, the, the weight and balance correct yeah um, so yeah, look, it's it's technically feasible now, and it's and it's it's commercially viable now, but obviously it's not yet certified. It's several years away, I think, from flying paying passengers. I think optimistically, two years could be five. You know, you're in a zone of unknown. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain amount of this is the first time, mate. This is like the Wright brothers, who's done this before? You know, so. I have a dream that before I'm 65, which is five years away, I'll be flying an electric caravan to Lady Elliot and back, and it'll have three batteries, one in the aeroplane, one on the island clipped into the power station getting charged by the sun, and one on the mainland clipped into a power station getting charged by the sun. I'll fly to the island. They'll unclip the battery. They'll clip the freshly charged one on it, we'll fl- and, and then the, the one that's been used will clip back in for charge. You'll fly back, and they'll keep clipping batteries in and yeah, out. Cool. Effectively, you're flying for nothing just yeah. the cost of your your engine wear and the electric motor there's no wear and tear of, of any consequence by comparison to a piston or a turbine so operating cost is minuscule and most importantly 
emissions are zero gone you know so it's um it's a quite a quite a remarkable story and especially so that it's here on the gold coast you know just five minutes exactly, from home yeah. and mm. driven by some extremely capable individuals but they were you know we had um, engineers and technical people that weren't necessarily aviators so we had to blend all that together and played our small part and our part has been small by comparison so we we aren't trying to take any credit we're just trying to tell the story and and help them to get the publicity that it now needs and wants you know and magnix is they're looking at all sorts of different stuff they're now involved with that other twin the engine's gone out of my mind now that just had a little problem over there but they they're looking at a couple of different ways to put those electric motors into different airplanes to get them flying commercially. Because, you know, like the biggest challenge that I face is the paradox or the dilemma of being a conservationist and, and, and a person who wants to protect the environment. And, and then people will say to me, but you fly airplanes. How do you justify that? I go, well, there's a few. It's a good question, and, and I really do test myself all the time on it. And how I answer it is, is 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 simple but complex. And the simple one for me is, well, I fly the most fuel-efficient machine I can, and that's a Cessna Caravan with 14 seats and a single-engine turboprop. The, the, the fuel burn per passenger seat mile, there's very little that will come even close. And if you want to land it on Lady Light, there's nothing that comes close. So that airplane itself is the most efficient thing that I can run. The Twin Otter doesn't cut that, but we've got markets – and customers such as Prince Charles that didn't want to travel in the single, which is why Paspalis ended up with Mallards, and I'll probably get into that if we get a second to explain some of that history when we took the Mallards up there. But the caravan is the most efficient thing we can get for the time being, but what about aviation generally? And a really good example right now, the Serengeti Plains, the Masai Mara, the wildlife in Africa, what's happening? I mean, I'm, I'm an Africa freak. I love the place. I get there whenever I can. I see the Great Barrier Reef is Africa of the water. Over there, Africa, the wildlife, we're desperately trying to protect the wildlife over there. And it's protected by tourists that come there and spend their money to stay in these camps and go out looking at the wildlife and taking photos of the wildlife, bringing money, creating jobs for the Africans to yeah. protect the wildlife. And how do they get there? They get there by air. They get there by by jets, you know, aeroplanes burning through the sky. And right now, because there's no one going, the poaching is off the Richter scale. Africa's yeah. in trouble. And it's been protected thus far by tourism and aviation. Now, I know that you might argue that's a not, a good not a good argument, but I think it is a good argument because whilst we're using those airplanes, guys like Richard Branson and plenty of others like us are working hard to develop better, more fuel-efficient machines. So we're supporting Magnics as best as we can. Others are doing the same. Aviation's always been at the leading edge of technology and development and growth, if you look at it. And aviation will lead us into the future of electric and hybrid, you know, power, solar and, and battery. And, you know, there'll be – I think the big heavy jets will be hybrids for a period of time before they go fully electric, I think. But, again, you know, there's just – there's so oh, much possibility. Way, yeah. It is, mate. But no, well said, mate, yeah. You know, that's my thoughts on it. Yeah. The other little thing I'll throw in there is, you know, for us, we do with our caravans a lot of resource work, fly and fly out mining. And and I've had people say, how do you justify that? And when you're hanging, you just arrived here and you've got your mobile phone. Yeah, okay, so where did that come from? It came from a mine. So before you criticise mining, let's think okay. about this. You can't have an aeroplane, you can't have a car, you can't have your television, you can't have your phone without mining. So 
let's have a let's be open minded here. Miners are humans just like you and I. Um, we work with some fantastic miners. They're human beings. They've got children. They've got families. They want the future. If I work with those miners to help them to do their job, but at the same time get to have lunch with them now and again and take them out to Lake Elliot with their families and show them, gets them thinking about how can they be more efficient and more environmentally considerate about their mine sites. And I've, I'm proud to say we've given great encouragement to companies like Evolution Mining, which is Australia's second largest gold miner, into how to preserve and and rehabilitate their mine sites after they're working through them, you know. And so these guys are getting a kick out of the fact that, oh, look at that, we're leaving the site better than, or as good as we found it or close to it. So, you know, to me, aviation, it, it brings so much value to what we do, but it can easily be the victim of some bad publicity if people don't understand or can't argue back those points, you know. Yeah. Now, there's certainly no doubting your passion for the ecotourism and and, uh, and those, uh, you know, different sources of energy um, that we can look forward to in the future, mate. And, and I think just what you spoke about there, one of the prime examples of um, how tourism can help benefit those areas like the reef or Africa you know I used to say to people in the Sundays, you know they used to go out snorkeling at the reef there and sometimes I thought no you know this reef here isn't that great you know it's been you can tell the people have been standing on it or they've been broken you know especially at places yes. like reef world and and you kind of th- you kind of look back and you got to say to yourself well maybe it's maybe to sacrifice a tiny little bit of the reef to show people how beautiful it is will encourage people to go back and and think better about how they live their life or, or what they contribute to life um, to make sure that we protect the rest of the reef um, from, you know, generations to come. So I kind of get that what you mean there. You know, you can't get to Lady Elliot without utilising an aeroplane. If, if you don't get to Lady Elliot, no one's going to be able to see how beautiful it is to then go home and say, let's protect the Great Barrier Reef, you know. So I completely understand that for sure. That's it, you know. And, and Nelson Mandela once said, if you fall in love with something, and it's only when you fall in love with something that you'll want to protect it, preserve it, and care for it. So if we can get people to fall in love with with the Great Barrier Reef and with conservation of that, then they'll go home and they'll want to protect it in any way they can. So no matter where in the world they live, they can take action that ultimately protects the Great Barrier Reef because it's by, by working on the greenhouse gas and the, the emissions issue that we're dealing with, the climate change issue is what's hurting the Barrier Reef because it's heating our oceans. And it's ultimately the major problem we all face. And Prince Charles has got that clearly in his mind. He's written a book called Harmony. If anybody's into reading books, grab it. He's insanely in front of anybody I've ever met on conservation. The man is quite a conservation genius and the media doesn't give him credit for that. Um, that's great. I can probably tick off political on my podcast now, mate, after this conversation. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> certainly a, a different um, different set of topics, but it's seaplane related. It's seaplane related. And uh, I wanted to actually just step back there a little bit because um, you talked about Witty, uh, Whiskey Tango Yankee, the aircraft that uh, unfortunately crashed in the Whitsundays. Um, mate, episode three of my podcast is with the pilot of that accident. And uh, he, talks, oh, okay. he talks a lot about you know recovery after such an accident. Uh, you know, especially the mental side of things. You know, he's he's doing really well as a caravan pilot in Sydney now. He's done a lot more float flying. But, um, you know, it all comes full circle, doesn't it? Like, who would have thought that, you know, now you've bought Witty and um, it's now operating this um, electric engine or helping out with that, you know. So I'll have to pass on to him that, and I'm sure he'll love to hear that as well. Um, yep. Mate, let's, we've, uh, we're getting towards the pointy end of the podcast, but I'd like to step back and, and talk to a couple of little, little things I've picked up to on the chat. Yep. First of all, um, 
The 215415 Canadairs, um, I didn't even know they'd been in Australia. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, what their role was when they came back to Australia? Yeah, an Aussie guy, uh, Michelle Lepage, is, it's so long ago now, my memory's getting a bit hazy, but I'm sure that was his name, Michelle Lepage. He was a good friend of a couple of the guys I worked with here at Sea Air, and Michelle was an Aussie that went over there flying water bombers, and he was... I think they were called Conero or Conair or Con a company yeah. like that. Yeah, going, and they yeah. were water bombers, right? So he had a bit of a passion for let's get these things into Australia in the off-season. So a good friend of mine, Max Irvin Brown, who was one of the movers and shakers that helped the starting of Virgin Airlines with Brett Godfrey and, and um, David Hutner, Max got involved with it and some or another they funded let's get this bloody thing to Australia. Pete will give us a hand. So we all, everyone pitched in. No one was making money. It was just let's get it here and let's show it to the Australian Fire Authorities. It was 96. I'll have to check my logbook. It was either 96 or 97. Anyway, first thing we brought in was a 415. What a wicked machine. It was a white one. And um, came into <laughs> came into Brisbane and we took it and we demonstrated it. And, mate, let me tell you, it wasn't it something. I, I got to sit up the front with Bruno, the, the captain, and – and pretend I was flying it. And um, we took it down onto the Broadwater. And if you know the Broadwater, like we used to land on the Eastern Channel, landing to the north and the south in the caravans. And so we had some media <laughs> and and I had the radio and Bruno, come in, mate, you've got to land that way. Oh, yes, yes, he's Italian. Yes, I'd pick up. And so he'd pick up some water and then he'd dump it and he'd go back, do a big do a big bloody teardrop. He'd pick, pick some more water and the whole bloody Southport just stopped. Like, you're joking. What's going on? And Bruno called me, oh, Peter, you think that's good. You watch this. And he goes around, he rips over the top of Southport, comes over the top of the high rise, bang, whacks it on the water, full power, rips six tonnes of water out, up over the top of SeaWorld, big teardrop and dumps it. Next thing the phone's ringing, it's Brian Fuchs from Casa. Peter, what's going on down there, mate? Stop, but stop. So Bruno, get it, take it away. <laughs> but it, it was insane. And, and, and so anyway, we demoed the 415 to the fire department. We flew it there. Should have blown them away, but they all they kept saying was there's no water in Australia. So, well, what's this stuff? We then took it up to the Hins Dam. We demoed it there. Then the argument they gave us was it's too expensive. It won't work. So they took it home. And never to be beaten, Max, not one to lie down, to let's bring the, the 215 in, the radial one, the piston one. It was a yellow one. And so they brought her over some months later and demoed her. And I, obviously it didn't do what the 415 did, but it still did good. And I managed to get in that one also, and we took it up to Musgrave just to play and brought it home again. So I've got an hour and a bit in the 415 and a couple in the 215, and and it went home and nothing happened, and nothing happened. And along came Elvis, and, of course, the media just loved it because it was a chopper. And um, so, yeah, I was I was never impressed by the fact that they didn't take – because what, what Conair offered them was off-season – We'll just charge an hourly rate. We'll bring them in the country. We'll park them in. We'll charge them an hourly rate. They didn't even want to know about it. But now, of course, the things, are they're just begging to have them in the country. So, yeah, that was something that I had a small involvement in and was so excited about and um, was but disappointed that it didn't go ahead, but it has in the end. So, like all these things, you've got to see the positive. It was probably the first hammer that hit that ice you know, and cracked the ice and said, well, these things are going to work. So then they went and they got Elvis, the big buddy helicopter, and then they got more of those. Then eventually they started bringing the fire bosses and, and other stuff. And we're looking at that stuff at the moment. I just see such a future for those things in this country that don't be surprised if CE is running fire bosses or something in the future. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah good are, things. They are, aren't they? And they, they can certainly do yeah. some good stuff for fires. 
and they're already starting to really pick up in the last few years. Um, the numbers have increased a lot. And um, one of our ex-pilots uh, at uh, Paspaley here, Peter Klein's over at Conair flying the Fireboss. He's been there for the last few years and um, doing a ripper job over there. Um, yep, yep. And, mate, um, you just touched on it before, but um, let's get back a step there and tell us a little bit about um, your story about flying the Mallards over to Paspaley. Yeah, great. Thanks. It was a was an interesting time, and Kev's highlighted some bits and pieces of it. So what happened was um, the whole Sea with Sunday business was being challenged by a lot of different things financially, and um, so a guy called Barry Ford, who at the time was Nick's accountant and was a and I guess an advisor, decided that they felt that there was room for a, a flying boat or you know an aircraft to service the camps up there. Um, out on the Coburg Peninsula and down towards Curry Bay. And, I mean, I knew that because I'd been up there in Broome for almost a year with Beavis, so I knew that it was the perfect tool. So one thing led to another, and, and um, back in about October 89, I think it was, or November 89, myself, Kevin Bow, Rod Johnson and Peter McLeod jumped in OAW, and um, we took it up to Darwin and demonstrated it, J23, demonstrated it to Nick and Barry and the guys, and we took it down to Broome and caught up with Johnny Woodman and Kim Mayle while I was down there and they'd sold out to Nick by then. Of course, he, he owned both the Darwin operation and the Broom operation. We took it to Koori Bay and and buzzed around with it. And the big advantage that it had was that it was two engines, as you've, if you've identified in your operation, twin-engine IFR. And at the time, I had no caravan experience and caravans weren't really, in their early years, a good machine. The, the, the caravan today, you know, a new EX long body caravan with the eight with the 867 horsepower is a wicked airplane but in those days the caravans just you could never have matched it to the mallard so it was the perfect thing for nick some of his family members didn't want one engine so they chose it so um while we were sitting in darwin i got a call from nick and i went down there this is a bit of a story about the man himself and um because i was representing the o'hare's interests and they owned the airplane and they owned the business of, of um airwit sunday and see sunday at the time they owned the airstrip and that up there so I went down and sat down with Nick, and he took me into his building. So Nick and I sat down because we got on really well because I'd fallen in love with the whole pearling industry and pearls when I was in Broome. And so we, in the time we spent in the Mallard together, we chatted a bit, and and he knew that I was representing the sale of the machine for Terry, who owned it. And so we sat and we chatted and we talked about pearls. And Nick pulled out this little box, and out came all these magnificent big pearls. So Nick and I, we're talking about pearls, and he's, he's found a – a bloody, you know, a, a, a like heart that loves pearls but loves aeroplanes. And so we're yakking away and he's laying them out on this lovely piece of this lovely piece of cloth and he says, look at this one. It was beautiful. It was about 30 mil. It was a massive big pearl. And said, Isn't that lovely? I said, it is lovely. I love it. And he said, well, that's a gift from me to your wife. And I just nearly fell out of the bloody room. I couldn't believe it. So Nick's given me this pearl. And anyway, the rest is history. We took the machine home. They bought it. Then Rod re-delivered it and then – a month later, they bought um, LAW, and she went up there as well, and Rod spent a lot of his life up there working with them and eventually making them into ATs. And so I continued to communicate with Nick and the family and and um, Barry Ford for a time. And and um, anyway, where I'm going to is this. One day, my home down here got broken into, and I'd never had time to do anything with that bloody pearl. And I had it sort of hidden away, as you do, under the bed, so to speak, 
in, wrapped in a little box and these bastards found it and they stole the pearl. And my wife was devastated because she always dreamed about the day we'd have enough money to set it beautifully, this pearl that Nick Paspale had given to Pete, just personally given it to me. And it was stolen. It was gone. And I didn't know what to do. So I just rang and I got Nick's PA and I said, could you just ask Nick if he would consider selling me something like that? And and she rang me back and said, yeah, Nick said, yeah, draw a picture of what it was and he'll work it out for you. So I did. And um, next thing I got another one in the mail, he just gave me another one. Like, what do you say <laughs> yeah. about a bloke like that, you know? And so that's the man you're working for and the family you're working for. Very, very generous people. Um, just wonderful people. I couldn't speak highly enough about them. And the Mallards have gone to a great home. I know he's he spent an enormous amount of money, and I saw at times where it was nearly tears in his eyes thinking about how much he's invested into those things, but they've given it back to him as well, you know. And so, you know, and it's great to see you're there now, mate, and and your passion and your way of managing it and, and highlighting it and demonstrating it and protecting the, the history of the mallard is really, really special, and I think it, it's a credit to you and it's a credit to the Paspaley family and the aeroplanes themselves, so good on you. Yeah, cheers, mate. And like I said, uh, anyone who kind of gets involved with the Mallards, they, they fall in love with the aeroplane. It is a, an incredible aeroplane to operate and um, there's so much such a great history with them. And yeah, like I said, it's a bit like the um, the Great Barrier Reef story, you know. You, you need to kind of show the world, you know, what it is so that people kind of recognise it and, and, and love it themselves, you know, and we can all uh, enjoy it together, I guess. Um, but mate... Um, Look, it's been great having you on the on the show, Pete. Uh, before we finish, I want to I want to go through a little uh, splash and dash questionnaire, just like the, <laughs> uh, the just like the land plane touch and go, the seaplane splash and dash. We'll just touch on a few questions, mate. Um, yep. And look, the first one, um, this one's I don't think you've answered this one for me just yet. So I'm excited to hear your answer. But what is what's your favourite seaplane that you've ever flown? Oh wow. I'm so fortunate. I've flown just so many different machines. And, and I mean, I'm like one of those guys that I'm happy no matter what I mean. I love flying them all. But I'd, I'd have to say my favourite is a Cessna Caravan short body on floats. They're just such a wonderful little airplane. You know, the Twin Otter's lovely, the Mallard's lovely, the Goose, the Widgeon. They're all beautiful machines, but I love my Caravans, mate. Sorry, she gets the tick. <laughs> have you flown a Twin Otter on floats? I've been in them. I have, I'm not. I've not flown one personally, yeah. but I've sat in and ridden it. They're great, fantastic machine on floats. And mm-hmm. as I said, I got two other things, but mine are both on wheels. Yeah. I can imagine. But um, we haven't been able to justify the, the expense no. of putting a set of twelve thousands under them. No, fair enough as well. Um, yeah, I, I I love the caravan on floats. I think it's it's a beautiful machine. It's such a pilot's machine, isn't it? You know, just yeah. nice seats, a beautiful cockpit, beautiful view as well. And then you got the PD6 at the front, which is one of the safest engines getting around. Um, and now with the new NXI, G1000 NXI in them, mate, it's like it's just like flying a computer, you know. They are yeah. just so good. And I'm so lucky. I've got all these young kids that are 20, 22, 24 that show me how to work it because it, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's seriously, it's just it's like flying a computer. It's insanely capable piece of equipment from a pilot's perspective to sit behind the NXI. Yeah. So we got a couple of those now. And so, yeah, we re- I'm really trying to make myself – you know, useful with it, and I said, lucky to have young blokes to show you how to do that. Yeah, no, I flew um, in Vietnam. I was over in uh, Hyo Aviation in in Hanoi there for a year before here, and um, they had three brand new EX caravans, G one thousand on amphibs. Um, yeah, that was good fun. Good IFR, you know, glass cockpit IFR, but then also the waterwork that was great. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Mate, what would be, if you could pick any seaplane around the world, uh, what would be your dream seaplane to fly? Mm, that's a beauty. Um, Float plane or a flying ma- boat? Yeah. Uh, oh, gee. Probably a Catalina. Probably one of those big boats. I would enjoy flying Catalina or Sunderland just because yeah. they're so big and they are just so beautiful. You know, Kevin described it so well when he talked about his takeoff out of Rose Didn't Bay. Yeah. You know, he just he put that into words beautifully. And, um, yeah, you know, I'd never had the experience of one of those big girls. And, yeah, I, I think if I if I had to say which one, I'd say one of those big girls, you know, something like that, a cat or a, or a Sunderland or something yeah. that was really, you know, four big engines, all the noise. Can you imagine the smells? You yeah. know, they've got dr- drums of oil in them and the engineers are pumping oil from one engine to the other and it just – Man, how exciting. I don't know if you've read any of those P.G. Taylor books about them flying across the oceans. Ah, that was just something else. That I stuff. have read one of the the early Qantas Day ones. It was great. Um, don't know how much flying boat was involved. I think it was more the early days of Qantas. But, but yeah, P.G. Taylor, I remember that. Um, mate, what would be – do you have one of your favourite seaplane experiences that just stands out? Um, <laughs> other than Gee. other than rocket ride up the front lot and um, cigarettes in the, in the mallard? <laughs> Yeah, oh, look, I mean, I've got a, nearly 17,000 water landings, you know. it's um, There's been so many exciting moments. I think every water landing is you, you hold your breath and you and you just pay to make it a good one. Yeah, I think that to thinking about it, um, often landing in Lady Musgrave was exciting, <laughs> to put it in a word, with a caravan. When you got there and it was high tide, there were some exciting moments. But yeah. I think about one of the most exciting moments is – and you've done it. I heard you talking about it. You go into Hayman and um, you take a beaver or a, or a buccaneer into Hayman and then you come out and into South Eastley and it's as sloppy as heck. And I remember I wasn't long on the buccaneer and I came out of there and I was probably too green and I probably shouldn't have been there. But the wisdom of hindsight didn't tell me that at the age of 25 or whatever it was. And I've come out of there in this bucket loaded with people and facing into this South Eastley that was coming off the top of the hill and bullets and waves and gave it the noise and trying to get it on the step. And next thing I knew, I'd gone through the wave, not over the wave. You know, so this green water went right over the top and did it twice. And it was like, what? You know, I thought I'd sunk it. I thought I'd gone underwater. So that was uh, a memorable experience that will never go away, is seeing that airplane drive itself through the wave almost. You know, it was crazy little airplane to fly a Lake Buccaneer. Kevin yeah. loved his Buccaneers. Didn't I didn't he? get much time in them, but... I mean, they amazing little machine, but I, I was a favour of the float planes. Bill Lane put me on the float planes early, and I did have always loved the float planes. But this, mate, you know, you've you got a lot of time on them. There's so many stories you could tell about the different things that you've done and, and how did you get out of that. Yeah, I, I could, yeah, yeah just, a, that's probably my most memorable one is bloody hell, going through a green plane, wave yeah. in a bucket. <laughs> And I think, and that you just nailed it. I think I came home and I said, "That's not a lake buccaneer. That's a lake submarine." Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And it bounced back out of it, you know, and kept going. It's crazy the difference between float planes and hulls. Like, you know, as part of my uh, type rating training for the Mallard, we went out to a little area that we operate for water work just near Darwin here, and um, you know, we, it was probably a day where we. Probably in hindsight, once again, we probably shouldn't have been there for some water training, especially. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, we're taxiing out into some some pretty windy open. Uh, it's Bino Harbour. It's, it's more like a harbour than a river or a bay. Um, yeah. And you know, there's there's just wave after wave pounding over the windscreen of this of this <laughs> mallard, and you're just like, 
I'm I'm nearly underwater here. This is this is not like what it's like in a caravan or a beaver. This is you know you're right yeah. underwater. Um, you know, we ended up being t- temp limited coming out of there because we'd sucked in so much salt water in the engines. You know, um, yeah. they're crazy. But um, hey, hey, my- actually, that does that. Do- I'll give you one. It does remind me of a really good story. So Rocket Rod taught me to fly the Buccaneer, and you know, when you're young, your hands are pretty good. And we've gone out of t- we did it out of Townsville over a couple of days and down towards Cape Cleveland, and and Rocket he wants to see you mess up. He wants you to see it get a have a big fail and a big bounce and save it. And, and, and I couldn't bounce it. I just, somehow or another, he taught me well and I was just getting it, you know. So he's trying to make me bounce and he's getting the shits and he's like, oh, bugger it, let's go back. And he signed me out. So it must have been irritating him. Anyway, we go out there and win the Mallard and we're up here on the Southport Broadwater, just five miles from where I'm sitting on my, my home. And, and we're doing some of my, my training and I'm in the left-hand seat and I got it in a porpoise. Well, you know what it's like, particularly with round engines, those big heavy things when they porpoise. And I've basically, I've lost it. And if Rocket wasn't there, mate, I wouldn't be here telling this story. I tell you, he saved me. And I could see the look of his face as, got you, you bastard. You failed. I've got you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you got me, mate. Thank God you were here because the old girl, had, and she'd beat me. I, I got it into a porpoise I couldn't catch. And that's a float plane pilot, you know, like yeah. a, a float plane pilot's reaction under, under and you know, a, a tight porpoise is not necessarily the right one. And, and so, yeah, it, that was a, a moment I'll not forget either. Rod taking over and getting it back for me. Thanks, mate. Well yeah, done. Exactly. <laughs> mate, it's, it's incredible the amount of pilots here that uh, we all struggle with porpoising. It's it's one of the hardest things about the Mallard. Hey, it takes pilots yeah. 150, 200 hours of flying before you can get that porpoise under control. It's um, yeah. Especially on those long sectors, you know, like you don't get a lot of chance for water work, but... That's another time, another story for another time, mate. But the last question I've got for you, um, yep. you've obviously been a chief pilot um, for Sea Air for a long time. You get to meet a lot of young pilots, like you mentioned before. Um, what would be some advice for some aspiring seaplane pilots trying to get into the uh, seaplane industry or just, just pilots in general? What, what have you got for us? I'm sure you've got something great. Wow, yeah. Look, it's um, it. it it's all it's all different, but it's all the same. It's commitment. It's passion. It's it's wanting to do it. It's being down there, looking through the fence with a look through your eye, and and, and the young guy hanging around, trying to get his chance to be there, working on the ramp, as they say, working around, washing the airplane, cleaning it, getting that opportunity, proving your determination. And you know, at times they've got to do the jobs that you know, perhaps considered the, the less palatable jobs to do, but. That's what makes you who you are. You know, like I started my business, my first business was cleaning toilets when I was in my early 20s after I finished racing motorcycles. And, I, and I'm still not frightened. I still clean toilets. I've got lots of toilets on Lady Early Islands. We've got 45 rooms, you know. And so my point there is don't be too proud. Don't be too proud to get in and do whatever it takes to do it because that's what makes you who you are is is having your heart and your soul and you put your heart on your sleeve and, and get in and do it and believe in yourself. Um, be prepared to put in the hours, be prepared to put in the time. That's a really big one is the commitment to the study and learning and being prepared for whatever it is that you're flying. You know, whatever that machine is, know it. Read the book, know the numbers, know it really well, understand the systems, listen, listen to the older guys that that have been doing it because they'll tell you stories. Some of them you go, oh, that's bullshit, but you'll still learn something from the story. And it's like the the basis behind the crash comic is um, the crash comic's a great old story to 
whereas you read about what went wrong with someone else. So hopefully that will allow you to avoid that happening to yourself. And it's the same. Sit with those older blokes and listen and learn and soak it all up, but don't be frightened to say if you think that there's ways to do things better because the older blokes should be humble enough to listen and learn to the young blokes, you know. So that would be my advice is do it. Aviation is fantastic. It's given us an amazing life, you know. I've just turned 60 and I couldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. I, I have loved every moment of it and I'm only 60 and I intend to be flying electric caravans by the time I'm 65 and who knows what by the time I'm 70. So, you know, I look at guys like Max Ward flying his bloody twin otter till he was nearly 80 and hopefully that's, Pete, you know, that's my goal. Absolutely. Yeah, great advice, mate. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing us some uh, some great stories about your career in seaplanes and uh, ecotourism and uh, turning me into a political podcaster. Um, but <laughs> um, for now, Peter, it's uh, once again, really appreciate you coming on the step, mate, and sharing your uh, experiences. Good on you, Daniel. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. And for anyone else out there listening, if Daniel calls you and asks you to come and do it, make sure you do it. He's, he's made this an easy process for me, made it an enjoyable process. I might not say that when I listen to it in the, in, in the future, when I listen back, but I'm I'm sure that, um, yeah, it's great. Thanks, mate. Looking Thanks, Paul. You take it. PayPal for that uh, 20 bucks I owe you now. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, mate. Righto, Thanks, Thanks Peter. Cheers. All right. And that's the show for today, folks. Peter Gash and his team doing us Aussies and really us humans uh, proud with all of his amazing stuff going on in South Queensland there. Now, don't forget to follow Magnix. That's Magni with an X on the end uh, and their electric engine test flight tomorrow. Uh, and you can also check out Sea Air Pacific on Instagram at Sea Air Pacific Aviation to follow their cool stuff and don't forget to leave me a review if you like this podcast also folks it really means a lot to hear you're loving the show I also had some emails coming in this week from people telling me how much they're loving it and uh, that really inspires me to work hard behind the scenes getting these stories out there for you now before we go as usual next episode is coming at you hard and fast folks this guy is an ex-Top Gun instructor he's flown F-14s and F-18s and now owns and operates one of the world's fastest growing seaplane companies. It's Rob Cerevolo from Flytropic Airways. And in 2009, I read Screw It, Let's Do It by Richard Branson. And I was like, you know, I'm screwed. I'm going to start a company now. And I got out of the Navy on my 10-year mark. I tried to continue to fly for the reserves. So I was making like 30 grand a year flying for the reserves. And I sold my house, my car, had a motorcycle, sold that. I even had kayaks that I, uh, you know, that I sold for parts. You know, <laughs> and we bought this like 206, and, and I, I hired my first pilot, who is now CEO of the company. Tighten your seatbelts, folks, because this episode is going supersonic. Until next time, everyone. Thanks for coming on the step. <laughs>